Well, while in America we don't uh, have the monarchy, I think many Americans love the monarchy. Not just of Britain, but of Europe, the pomp and the and the beauty and the pageantry of a, a royal wedding or a coronation. In preparing for this sermon, looking at coronations, I, I, was, I was drawn to Queen Victoria, who ascended to the throne in 1838. And uh, the, the detail and the amount of money and the effort expended to prepare for her uh, taking the throne was incredible. They, they built train tracks to being, bring people in. Her, her crown alone had 3,093 gems, rubies, sapphires. There was a 309-carat diamond in the crown. The scepter that she carried, had um, it was cut from the Star of Africa, 516-and-a-half-carat diamond. I mean, the pageantry and the opulence was overwhelming. And as I think about how how we honor kings and queens as they ascend. I find it in absolute stark contrast to the entry that Jesus made into Jerusalem on his coronation day. That's what we're studying in Matthew 21, Jesus coming in to be declared king. Now before we look at 21, I want to remind you as to where we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been out of it all summer. And so remember Matthew's intent in the Gospel is to declare Jesus to be the king over the entire universe. That's his goal, that Jesus Christ is the king sent from God to save a broken and rebellious people. That's what Matthew, when you're reading this gospel, when he penned the gospel, he wants you to walk away saying, he is a great king. And so he goes about proving this, right? In the first four chapters, we saw how he describes the unique lineage of Jesus from Abraham and David, the two kind of high watermarks in Old Testament revelation. He's from them, and yet he's conceived by the Spirit. He has no earthly father. He has no stain of Adam. He is born by the Spirit of God, and he's born to save. He's born not just to educate and to better. He's born to save us. I mean, the angel said to Joseph, you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then we see we see princes and magi go worshiping him from the east, remember? Kind of just a little picture of all the nations are going to come and worship this king. That's Matthew's point. Then, of course, he's tempted by Satan. He goes into ministry. And then what does the king do when he gets into ministry? He begins to teach. He's uniquely born. He uniquely teaches. He gives a sermon on the mount. Remember 5, 6, and 7? And think about what he said. He would say things like, you've heard it said, but I say to you, He's taking the Old Testament, and he's saying, let me deepen its understanding. I'm the one that has come to bring about a correct understanding of the Old Testament. Or at the very end, he says, listen, whoever hears my words and does them, you'll be like a builder that puts a house on the rock. When the winds and the storm comes, it will remain. I mean, what what words to say? If you listen to me, you will be fine in life. If you listen to me and don't do what I say, you have a precarious life ahead. It's unique teaching he gave. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he did these unbelievable miracles. He raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. 
all proving he's king of a unique kingdom. This is a picture of the kingdom that he's coming to bring. And then 10, 11, and 12, he begins to gather a people together around the disciples. Twelve disciples to kind of show the blooming of Israel into more than just an ethnic grouping of people. And then 13 to 20, you find all this opposition. Jesus' ministry is going out, and yet the leaders and the people are beginning to oppose this king. All the way until chapter 20, the last thing I preached when we left Matthew was the, was the healing of those two blind men. And here's the deal. Two blind men on the road crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And of course, Jesus heals them. Now, there was a historical healing, but the symbolism is blind men were seeing this king that those with sight couldn't see. And that sets us up for now entering Jerusalem where they're not going to see him. Jesus is going to disclose himself. Do you realize that we're starting in Matthew 21? The next eight chapters take place in one week. That is the importance of what we're about to enter. And Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem and he's going to disclose himself to us. He's going to reveal himself to us in a way that is unique. Unique, and it's calling for us to respond. How do we deal with this? Jesus doesn't come in and begin to kind of facilitate a roundtable discussion on life. He comes in as a king, demanding a response from us. That's what's happening here. And if you have eyes to see, blessed will you be. If you don't have eyes to see, then yeah, then it's a, it's a bad day ahead. So let's look at Matthew 21. Let's look at verses 1 to 11. And then we'll just look at two things. A divine disclosure. I want you to see how Jesus has chosen to reveal himself. And then what do we respond? We're going to see both wrong and right responses. So divine disclosure. He says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, so all that's taking place outside the city walls, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Okay, so the first thing I want you to hang with me on is three disclosures. He's going to explain himself, his identity, in three ways. Three ways. And then we'll look at the responses in verses 10 and 11. Okay, the first thing he does is he reveals himself to be a promised king. He reveals himself to be a promised king, that he is a king that was promised from long ago. In other words, you can see 
He is intentionally entering Jerusalem. He has a plan. He's arranging things. You see that as he sends his disciples in, says, get the donkey and get the colt and, and bring them to me. And if anyone asks you anything, you just tell them the Lord is need of them. So Jesus is, you know, some scholars will say, Jesus kind of got caught up in the wheels of religious conflict and he got caught up in the wheels of, of political intrigue and he ended up getting swept up into Jerusalem and ended up dying, and this wasn't his intent at all. No, 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 you see an intentionality. Jesus carefully crafting an entrance into Jerusalem, that he is doing all this work. He wants to go into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he wants to do it intentionally. Now, a lot of people look at this, and we think, and Calvin did, the great scholar and reformer in the 16th century, a lot of people look at this and say this is his divine foreknowledge that he knew where the donkey was, and, and the man would release the donkey. Maybe, I don't know, I don't think it has to be that way. I think Jesus could have arranged it. Why do I say that? Not to take away any glory from Christ, but I think Jesus' intention here is not to perform a miracle, it's to enter according to the word of God. Jesus wants to enter in a way that he is disclosing himself to the people. I'm the fulfillment of this promise. You notice in the passage here, he says that this was to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, the people of God, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus is intending the people to see him riding the donkey so they connect the dots. That's the Messiah. Now, you, you shouldn't be surprised. Fifteen times in Matthew, you hear this language. This was to fulfill what was spoken. Jesus sees, he knows he's the Messiah. And so he is coming in in a way to disclose to the people, I am your Messiah. Now this should catch us a little bit off guard, because as you've studied Matthew with us, you've seen Jesus often be kind of secretive about his identity. He'll often say to people who he heals, he says, now say nothing to anyone. When the demons begin to cry out, oh, holy one, he stops him. Peter, he stops him. Now, this is what theologians call the messianic secret, that, 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 there's a, that there's a restrictive nature of Jesus disclosing himself. Why? Well, Jesus doesn't want to develop a temporal fanaticism over this healing ministry. Jesus wants to disclose himself on his terms, in his time, and this is the time he's going to do it. And he does it in boldness. He does it on a very international stage. Remember, the time that we're in is Passover. And at Passover, Jerusalem would swell upwards of two million people. There was a census taken about 10 years after the death of Christ that recorded 260,000 lambs were slaughtered at Passover. Now, the law states, because lambs are expensive, that 10 people could buy one lamb and have it slaughtered as an act of atonement. So if 260,000 lambs were slaughtered, it could mean upwards of over 2 million people were there. So Jesus is disclosing himself, as he chooses to, as the promised king. He's fulfilling the promise of God. So a, a quick takeaway here is we do see, do you not, the faithfulness of God. Jesus is vindicating God is being faithful to his promises. Listen, let me remind you back in Genesis chapter 3, 
15, God promised the people, he says, listen, or promised to Eve, you're going to have a seed, which is a son, and the son's going to crush the head of the serpent. Remember the whole sin in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and 9? That sin through all of God's creation that was good, 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 very good, into rebellion. And he brought the curse on creation. That's why our world is the way it is. And, and the promise was, no, a seed's going to come and he's going to roll back that curse. He's going to turn back everything into as God intended. That was a promise that people hung their hats on. They were looking for it. I mean, they were looking for it in Noah? No. They were looking for Abraham. Abraham got a promise that his seed too, the same seed, would bless the nations. But Abraham's sons didn't, right? Moses didn't. Joshua didn't. The judges didn't. Yeah, and then David. That was another high watermark. David. He's got to be the one. No, he failed too, but he had a seed. And God said to him, you're going to have a son. And upon him, a government will rest. He'll be a king. So we see Jesus now walking in, come riding in on a donkey, declaring to everybody, I'm the Messiah. This is vindicating God's faithfulness. Now just stop for a minute. God's scriptures, his word has given us all kinds of promises. And so for us to leave here without stopping and saying, hold it, if God has been faithful to the promise of sending the seed to deliver us from sin and reconcile us to God, aren't the other promises true as well? I mean, those of you struggling right now in financial kind of turmoil, and he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat, drink, or wear. Shouldn't we believe that promise? Or those of you who are struggling in life and wondering, what's God doing with me? And you hear a promise that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Shouldn't those promises fuel our faith? Shouldn't those promises cause us to think, no, he is true. He's right. He's faithful. I can go to these promises. I can turn to them. And my faith can be fueled, enlivened, developed, challenged, and move forward. That's what we're walking away with here. God's not a man that he should lie. He's not a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The answer is a resounding, no. He is faithful. He cannot disown himself. So that's the first thing we see here. Is Jesus comes, I'm the fulfillment of the promise of God. I'm vindicating his faithfulness. Nobody can ever declare God as unfaithful. In fact, in 2 Corinthians it says, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. Christ is the vindicator for God's faithfulness. We can rest. You can take all of his promises and just enjoy them and let them be to you. Aid, help, encouragement. Okay, the second thing we see about Jesus, the second thing is his humility. He comes as a humble king. So you have the, you have the, the ascension of Queen Victoria. You have coronations. You have all this pomp and circumstance of these royal events. And yet notice how Jesus chooses to enter. He chooses to enter on a donkey. Now that quote is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And if you were to look at that whole chapter, you would see that the promise is God's going to send a king, and the king's going to give world dominion and exercise universal peace. That's what he's going to do. That's the promise of the king from Zechariah. Universal dominion and peace. How does he achieve it? Well, he doesn't do it with military might. He does it with meekness. He doesn't come into Jerusalem with troops and weapons. He comes in unarmed. He comes in with disciples that, according to John 12, 16, they still didn't know what was going on. 
I mean, talk about a group to associate yourself with. They didn't know what was going on. Instead of coming in with this war horse, you know, you can imagine a war horse. I mean, the, just this big horse with armor in the front. You know, you could just imagine in your mind's eye the muscles just tensing, right? And the nostrils just snorting. And coming in as a conqueror would come into a town that he would take. No, Jesus is on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. Just to give you perspective, the Middle Eastern breed of a donkey is smaller than the Western breed. So a grown man would have to lift his knees up so they don't drag along the ground. It's almost comical. I mean, it's almost kind of funny. He's riding in on this little, I mean, maybe a hobbit should be on there. (laughs) Perhaps it should be at a children's zoo. And he chooses to walk to his, or to be carried to his coronation on something so humble. Keep in mind who we're talking about. He's already raised the dead. He's already fed thousands of people. He's already given sight to the blind. He's already healed the leper. He's already cured the sick. He's already given the deaf hearing. He's already given the lame power to walk. And he's riding in on a donkey. It's really incredible, isn't it? The sheer power of Christ, yet he humbles himself. You know, Jonathan Edwards was probably one of the greatest American theologians of the the, um, 18th century up in New England. And he preached this sermon on Revelation chapter 5, 8, 9 called The Excellencies of Christ. And in this passage from Revelation 5 about Jesus is, is the lamb and the lion, as John referenced even in his opening words, he writes a sermon on the greatness of the infinite glory of Christ, and yet the infinite condescension. Let me just read you part of his 28-page sermon. Mine's not that long. He says this, In Christ Jesus do infinite highness and infinite condescension meet. Christ, as he is God, is infinitely great and high above all. He is higher than the kings of the earth, for he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's higher than the heavens. He's higher than the highest angels of heaven. So great is he that all men, all kings, all princes are as worms of the dust before him. All nations are as the drop of the bucket, the light dust on the balance. Yes, even angels themselves are nothing before him. Christ is the creator and great possessor of heaven and earth. He is sovereign Lord of all. He rules over the whole universe. He does whatever pleases him. His knowledge is without bound. His wisdom is perfect. His power is infinite. None can resist him. His riches are immense and inexhaustible. His majesty is infinitely awful. And yet he is one of infinite condescension. None are so low or inferior, but Christ's condescension is sufficient to take gracious notice of them. He condescends not only to angels humbling himself to behold the things that are done on the earth, but he also condescends to such poor creatures as men. And that not only to take notice of princes and great men, but of those that are of the meanest rank and degree. He condescends to take notice of beggars, of people of the most despised nations. He is thus high. He that is thus high condescends to take gracious note of little children. Yea, what is more, his condescension is sufficient to take gracious notice of the most unworthy, sinful creatures, those that have no good deservings, and those that have infinite ill deservings. 
He says, infinite glory and the virtue of humility meet in no other person but Christ. Infinite glory and lowest humility meet in no created person. For no created person is infinite glory, and they meet no other divine person but in Christ. In Christ Jesus, who is both God and man, the two diverse excellencies are sweetly united. Christ is a person infinitely exalted in glory and dignity. The humility of Jesus. He's displaying himself to be humble. Tim Keller made this observation in his thoughts on this text. He said, nowhere do you see this kind of leader that excels in such humility, and yet he is not modest. He, he is humble in the fact that he reaches out to women and to children and to the sick, and he's gracious to prostitutes and tax collectors, and he hangs around with those that we may avoid, and yet he's not modest. He says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. If you come to me, you will have living waters flowing out of you. He says, come to me. I will give you rest for your souls. He says bold things. Nowhere do you see these two summed up perfectly in Christ. And yet he humbles himself for us. When you just take a look at the landscape, just let's just look at America for a minute, and the leaders of America. You have the Republican debates. <clears throat> There's so much hubris, so much arrogance, so much posturing of, I'm going to do these things for you. I mean, where is the humility in our leaders? Not just Republicanism. President Obama, speech in July 5 of 2012, just a 25-minute sermon, 117 times. I, me, mine. In one sermon, or one speech he gave, could have been a sermon maybe, he used I, me, or mine more times than all the words Lincoln used in the Gettysburg Address. Where is the, where is the humility? It's both parties. It's men and women. It just feel, If we don't see, if we're not overwhelmed by his infinite glory condescending to serve us, that'd be the only thing I'd want you to get from the sermon. Just be overwhelmed with that. I mean, think about it. In 2 Corinthians, he who is rich for our sakes became poor so that we who are poor might be rich. I mean, the infinite glory of one. And, and he, what he's coming into, Jerusalem, is not to claim a throne, but it's to climb a cross. I mean, that's the humility. Not just riding the donkey. The donkey is just a symbol of the death of the Son of God on our behalf. This is the glory of the gospel. The humility of Christ that is only matched by the glory of Christ. Be overwhelmed with me over this Savior. So he comes and he demonstrates not just that he is the promised king from God, but he is a humble king. And then last we see that he's a saving king. We see that he is a saving king. Now listen, a lot of kings come into lands to do a lot of things conquer, destroy, grab land, subjugate people, terrorize. Few kings in the history of humanity have come to save, to save, and he does. You know, when you looked at that verse there in, in verse 5, it's really, a, it's really a combining of verses. There's a verse in Isaiah 62, 11 that says, Say to the daughter of Jerusalem, your salvation comes. 
But it's combined with Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Shout, daughters of Jerusalem. Your king comes in righteousness, having salvation, riding a donkey. So you see this picture of Matthew saying, Jesus is coming to bring salvation, to save, to save us, to deliver us, to take a people who were in bondage and lead them out. That's what he's coming to do. Now, you kind of see it. The people seem to get something of it. They're laying their coats down. If you were to read 2 Kings 9, you would see that's kind of a statement of saying, when I throw my coat on the ground for you to walk on, basically I'm saying anything you want, you got. I mean, anything I have is yours. I'm submitting to you. Here's my coat, which is symbolic of my life, so walk on it. So you see them seeing his somewhat as a savior. They also cut these palm branches down. Palm branches were a sign of military victory, all the way from the second century before Christ, the Maccabean War. Waving palm branches to a deliverer. It's a sign of honor. It's according glory to the one who's delivered us. You see the same picture in Revelation 7, 9. Waving palm branches before Christ. He's the victor. He's going to deliver us. But it's more than just what they do. Notice what the people say. They shout out what? Hosanna. In other words, that word means save us. Can you imagine? He comes in and they're shouting, save us. We need to be saved. And then they shout, son of David, which is that promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7. That God promises David, you will have a son, and your son's going to be a king, and upon him will be a kingdom. A government will rest upon his shoulders. That means that Jesus' shoulders will establish a kingdom of which he will be a king. This is filled with Old Testament fulfillment language. Or blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's right out of Psalm 118, 25, and 26. That was a song that was sung at the Passover commemorating God's act of deliverance from Egypt. God sent Moses in and he delivered the people in power and he brought them to the promised land to be with God. And now they're saying, so they're seeing Jesus as a type of Moses. He's going to deliver us. He's going to save us. Now, of course, we're going to see they didn't get the whole picture. But let me remind you that this disclosure of Jesus, Jesus is saying to you, he is the only Savior. Folks, there is no other route to God. Now, we live in a pluralistic age, and and everybody has a right to say, well, this way works for me, this way. We can say whatever we want, but what Jesus is disclosing is that he is the only way. There is a uniqueness to his salvation that will require his life that no other religion will offer. And so, you know, we may have friends, and they're like, well, Jesus works for you. We want, we want them to know, no, it isn't just that Jesus works for us. It's that Jesus has proclaimed himself to be the only way. So when someone says, well, that's arrogant of you to say that Jesus is the only way, that's what he said. That's what he's claiming. That's what the scriptures are indicating. I don't want to be divisive as a person but I want to be committed to the truth of what he says. And what he has said is that he has come to save. There are no other. A lot of religions want to go outward. Islam, right? Buddhism, New Age, goes inward. Jesus has come downward. 
That's the salvation that we need. He has come downward to us to save us. There's no other way. So this is a picture. You see Jesus as the promised king. You see Jesus as the humble king. And you see Jesus as the saving king. The saving king. Now, look at 10 and 11 with me, because the people are responding to this now. And you see, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. That word means shaken. Well, you can imagine there's, there's hundreds of thousands of people all shouting, and there's commotion going on. The city is stirred. The Romans are stirred. This is getting to be a, a real, this is getting to be a very volatile situation. And so how do we see the different people respond? Well, you see the first group, that is the people with Jesus, you know, they're going with him, and I think they're according him honor and dignity. I mean, they're throwing their coats down, they're shouting out these Old Testament phrases, seeing him as the fulfillment of them. So I think there's a lot going on in their minds. I think that they're excited about Jesus. I think that they see him as some deliverer. I do. I think they really have a, a partial handle on his delivering power. And a lot of these people in the crowd remember where they're from. They're from Galilee. So they've seen the bulk of his ministry. They've seen the bulk of his power. So why then would these people saying these things on Monday, saying, Hosanna, save us, move to crucify him on Friday? What, what makes the change? What, why, why would they flip so incredibly? Well, he didn't come in and deliver like Moses. There was no flashbang from the sky. There were no miracles. There was no pounding of Rome. There is no setting up of a new kingdom. There wasn't getting a, a steering committee for this new king and he's going to set up. There was none of that. He rides a donkey and we're going to find that he clears the house out in the temple and he begins dealing with children and a bunch of little kids and he heals them, the lame people. and We don't need them to establish a kingdom, but Jesus goes and he heals them all. But he didn't meet their expectations. He didn't deliver them. They saw the problem as Rome. Rome is a problem. Rome needs to be judged Rome needs to be condemned. They didn't see. They needed to be condemned. They needed a Savior to be condemned for them. They didn't meet their expectations. And so they moved on. Now, you know, this is so commonplace in today's world, particularly in the health and wealth gospel. That is a heresy. That will not lead anyone to the glory of Christ. This idea that God is up there for us to just fix life and bring health and wealth to us so we can display that's not the way it works. And this is the way people left then and people leave now. It's a crisis faith. It's a foxhole faith. I'm in trouble. I pray. God, you've got to deliver me. If he doesn't, he's a monster. I'm moving on. It is not a saving faith. A saving faith is trusting in Christ even in the midst of conflict and trouble. So that's one response. It's kind of a, it's kind of a looking at Christ from an earthly perspective. I don't deny that when we pray and we don't get an answer or if something goes in a direction that we don't want it to, there is disappointment and there is sadness. But that sadness and disappointment has to be contained within the greater picture of Christ redeeming all things for his glory and our joy. So we can't lose sight of the big picture here because right now life is not going well. The second error I think we see is kind of a superficial response. You know, when they ask, who is this? They said, he's a, he's a prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, that's not, a, that's not a small title, a prophet. I mean, prophets are given honor, no question about it. But prophets can't command allegiance like a king can. 
They only saw him as a prophet, but he's much more than a prophet. That is woefully inadequate for how Jesus is disclosing himself. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus doesn't give us room. So I'll often ask people, who do you understand Jesus to be? It's kind of a form of entrapment, not totally. But when they say, well, I think Jesus is like, and they begin pondering as if the wealth of the universe is between their ears, and they, I think Jesus is like, and I think they're sincerely trying to create a nice Jesus that's acceptable and palatable. But he doesn't give us that option here. He's, he's almost coming in with such boldness. I would even say, and I'll hit this more next week, I would even say he's, sticking a, he's rattling the bear cage right now with the religious leadership. He is initiating confrontation. He is having to initiate that which will crucify him later. He's coming and making a claim. Basically, in a word, as one commentator said, he's either saying, you either crown me or you crucify me. One or the other. There, there is no middle ground. You either crown me and submit to me as king, as I am, or you're in rebellion to me. I mean, it, it is a bold thing that he's doing. So to call him a prophet, we like to, many people will call Jesus good, teacher, all that sort of stuff. All those things are inadequate. And that is a, is a false response. You also see kind of a superficial response. Did you notice that little catch there in verse 8? He says, most of the crowd spread their cloak. Most of them, not all of them. So some of them were probably there for a show. I mean, they heard Lazarus had been raised from the dead the week before. Maybe they were there. There are going to be some sign of power. Maybe we're going to be able to see something exciting from Jesus. We do the same thing. You know, we're driving down 540 and police pulls over somebody. What do you do? You kind of let go of the gas. Just want to check. Do I know them? You know, or an accident occurs. We get, I've been late to come to church because of the traffic backed up by rubbernecking. Because, now, we don't have anything to do with it, but we're just kind of interested. I think there were most of the crowd. Pray for the people in your life that just have an ambivalent curiosity to Jesus. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice. They, they just don't seem, it doesn't even seem to apply to them as having the weight, has the weight of a feather to them. That's how significant it is. I mean, pray for them. Don't look down upon them. I mean, pray for them. Ask God to give them grace that they would feel the gravity of what you understand Christ to be. And then, of course, you see the fourth response, which we're going to see next week, judgment. Jesus is a threat. I want you to know Jesus will threaten you. His life and following him is a real and present danger to us. It is. And to our faith as we often play it out. He's a real and present danger. Well, all these things have in common. The people, and this is true, all of us go to God when we have something in need. These people had needs, and they're going to Jesus, but they're not, they're, they think that their need is changing of the Romans, changing of the government, bringing in better economic reform, social justice, bring a new government, government in, everything's going to be better. They don't see that the fundamental problem is more internal, and it's the nature of our sin before God. Do you understand that? Do you, when you, if I were to ask you, what is your greatest need right now? Would it be God? Would it be the sin that separates you from God? What is your greatest, they didn't see the greatest need. And that's why when Jesus came in, preaching a gospel of repentance and salvation, it didn't scratch where they were itching. They didn't see it as a need. 
Do you see it as a need? Jesus did not come to crush an enemy. He came to crush sin to restore us to God. And do you see that Jesus came humbly and weak to do this because he's showing us that it's going to be through our humility that we enjoy the work of his salvation. The strong are not saved. The strong don't need Christ. It's the humble and the weak and the broken that say, I need your redemptive work. That's what, If we knew what he knew, we'd see this is the greatest need, that he has come to die for us. His kingship is going to begin with torture and death for us to be reconciled to God. So, so those are some false responses. And, and this is the reason. The reason people respond to Jesus wrongly is they don't see the fundamental nature of their sin. I've told you in evangelism, much of the work done is often deconstruction. It's trying to get them to see Jesus is coming as a savior, not as a fix-it man, not as a utility guy, but he's coming to deliver us from our own sin. And until a person can see the gravity, and some increasing measure of their sin. And this is why we're always so hesitant with baptizing children. This is why. Because do the children really understand the gravity of sin? Because if you don't understand sin, then the work of a Savior is kind of extraneous. It's nice, it's a good example, but I don't cling to it like it's the only buoy in the middle of the ocean. I won't cling to it as tightly. Okay, so how do we respond to this Jesus? Let me just give you some thoughts to consider. And I want you to take these home and mull, mull them over. Number one would be, would be recognizing Christ as king. In other words, recognizing, understanding, admitting, taking Jesus as he states himself to be, that he is the promised king. You're not going to look for anybody else. You're not going to look inside. You're not going to look to a new government. You're not going to look to anything. You're going to look to God. He has promised a Savior, and he's given us one. And, and, and you're going you're to recognize that Christ is king, not just promised, but he's humble. And it's going to challenge the way you live. It's going to challenge the way you think, that you're, you're humbled by his humility. You're overwhelmed by it. You're going to see him as a saving king. You're not going to look to your works. You're not going to look to the things that you can do to establish yourself before God. Otherwise, salvation wouldn't be of grace. They'd be of your merit. So, so recognizing Christ as king is really summed up in the idea of having faith. Is Jesus the promised one? Is he the humble one? Is he the saving one? Do you have faith in that? And let me tell you how faith is evidenced. Because faith is hard to measure when you look at yourself. Faith is seen this way. Faith is seen in the increased joyful obedience to the commands of God. Faith is seen in the joyful obedience to the commands of God. Remember what faith is. Faith is always going back to the historical work of God in Christ. So faith finds its rootage, its grounding, in what God has done for us in Christ. And as we see his protection and his provision, we now live in light of his commands, trusting that his commands are the best way. So, so the commands of God given to me, I can follow because I know how good he is. And so out of the overflow of my joy, so the commands aren't kept so that he will love me. The commands are kept because he did love me. See the difference? I don't keep the commands because he will love me. I have, I'm keeping the commands because he has loved me. And because he has loved me, I can trust him and follow everything he says. So that's faith. Recognizing Christ as king is to have faith, which is evidenced 
in the obedience that we walk in, but it's also evidenced by repentance, that you and I are repenting of our self-worship. You and I are repenting of our self-stubbornness to want to be the king. We are repenting of those things that we do when we don't trust in the provision and the protection of God. We don't think about his gracious work in our lives. And so to recognize Jesus as king is to practice faith and repentance. Now, if you're not a Christian here, if you're just looking at these things and you're investigating these claims, I'm thankful that you're here, of course. Uh, But I would say today is the day of your salvation. If you're coming into terms with your own brokenness and your own ability to bring life to a place of contentment and peace with God, there's an emptiness, then I would, cons- I would ask you to consider placing your faith in Christ, asking him to forgive you, repenting of your sins, coming and worshiping before him, just like the Magi came, just with a little bit of knowledge, they came and, and gave their lives to Christ, as it were. And for the Christian here, if you are in fact a Christian, faith and repentance is just the language of our lives forever. We're constantly exercising faith. I'm asking you to believe that Christ is a better Savior than you finding success or money or monetary, whatever, whatever you're looking for that seems to fill your cup. I'm asking you to repent of that and find Jesus to be sufficient for you in all things. I'm asking you to remind yourself of the faithfulness of God. That's what faith looks like. Us walking according to these words of God because he's so good to us and repenting when you fail. And don't fall to despair, move to delight in the gospel. Okay, so recognizing Christ is king first. Secondly, the right response would be rejoicing. Rejoicing in Christ as king. Listen, in Zechariah, notice what he says. He says in 9.9, he says, rejoice greatly. Okay, that is rejoice. We can have a party with rejoice. But rejoicing greatly is like an amped up rejoicing. He says, shout. I'm not really a shouter, per se. I don't think I'm a shouter. Perhaps the kids might give otherwise, give a word otherwise. But I, I'm not a shouter, but he's saying, shout. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. I mean, do you... I mean, when I think about the salvation that he brings, rooted in himself and not rooted in what I do, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that it's his righteousness which puts me in good standing with God. Do you realize this? The doctrine of justification is he comes with righteousness, that God loves the righteousness of Christ, and by faith, his righteousness is ours. That's what's called imputed righteousness. Our sin goes to him. This is the gospel. His righteousness goes to us. And now we stand before him forgiven because of the merits of Jesus Christ. This is rejoicing worthy. It's going to try to make a new word. That is worthy of rejoicing over and, and, and being thankful. You can rejoice that he has saved you. You can rejoice that he has taken pity on you, a sinner. You can rejoice that he's a friend of sinners. He has a soft spot in his heart for broken people. Isn't, is that good news? I, I mean, to know that, that we don't have to clean ourselves up before going to him, to know that we can be like that prostitute in Luke 7, filthy, having been abused for years by men, and we can walk up and weep on his feet. He says, daughter, faith has saved you. You are forgiven. You're cleansed. Isn't that amazing? The kindness 
that he would forgive us, that he would be open to us and unworthy people. I know we look good to each other, but to him we're unworthy. And yet there's a place in his kingdom for us as we repent. So let's rejoice over that. And, and let that begin to stir your affections. Many of us, I think, would say, I'm struggling with desires for God. I mean, I don't have affections. Like Charles Spurgeon says about this. He says, how can we be cold in his presence? Should we not bubble up with white hot heat? And yet many of us don't have that white hot heat. We don't. We have kind of more of a, a refrigerator kind of heat, kind of cooler. Maybe not frozen, but it's cooler. What do we do? What do we do? How do we, how do we increase the temperature of our affections for God? Well, I think Bob touched on it last week. And, and let me finish it out this week. It's considering the nature of our sin and the nature of our Savior. It's thinking what Christ has done. It's, it's understanding his life, looking at Christ, beholding Christ, focusing on Christ. Robert Murray McShane, the famous line, you know, for every one look you take at yourself, take 10 of Christ, take 10 of them, behold his glory, think about his beauty. I mean, sitting at the right hand of God right now, above rule, authority, power, and dominion for the church. If we don't do this, you know, Martin um, Heidegger was a theologian in the early 20th century, and he says that we are not a reflective people. He says, um, he said we're a um, calculating people, but we're not a reflective people. Now, that was in 55. Now with technology, we're even less... Re- if you can't reflect and behold the glory of Christ, then, then you are, your fires are going to burn low. That's just one community of faith as well. So, so rejoice with me over salvation. Let's be a church, let's be a people who are more thankful over what he has done than what we perceive needs to be done in our life. Because he's done it, he said it's finished. Okay, the third thing is remember that he's coming Again, now this is really important that you probably wouldn't see just reading it. This was a dry run, if you will, to his entrance into Jerusalem. In fact, one theologian said it this way. This is kind of a satire. This is a satirical entrance into Jerusalem. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what the, here's what the author meant. You know, you think of a coronation. You got a lot of the props of the coronation. You have the cheering crowds. You have the palm branches. You, you have the entrance into the city. You kind of have what looks like you know, kind of the, the stuff of what makes a coronation. But then you see this king, and he's riding on a donkey. He's got to lift his feet. It's so small, and he's going to be crucified at the end of the week. And it's kind of a satire on what it should be. But it's pointing to a coming that will yet, that is yet to be. In other words, in Zechariah, it's the same book in chapter 14. When the Messiah returns, where will his foot first step? It's the Mount of Olives. Same step, same place where he left off. And he's going to come, this time not on a donkey, but on a horse. Let me just read to you from Revelation. It says, Then I saw heavens open, and behold, a white horse, not a donkey, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in his righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth 
comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress in the fury of wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is how he will enter Jerusalem again. So we're in the time between we do well when we respond to his coming. Remember that there is yet another time to come again. And that time won't be a time of offering of a great salvation, but bringing a permanent and final and eternal judgment. So let's take a minute now, and, and we've seen the disclosing of Christ, that he is, he is promised of God, he is faithful, oh, sorry, he's humble, and he is saving, and we saw false responses, and we saw the true response, that we recognize him, live before him as king, repenting when we fail, that we rejoice before him, and that we remember. And we have to reflect on this. We remember that he will come again. People, it's going to happen, and it's going to be like a thief because people haven't been reflective. Let us be those that are like the virgins that prepared, had extra oil, and they were ready when the bridegroom came. Let's take a few minutes, and then uh, Ray's going to close us. Just a few.